Well, I first just want to say uh, thank you for praying for me. Uh, last week was not a good week. <laughs> um, I had a little sickness on uh, Saturday, and uh, uh, that's an understatement. That's probably the sickest I think I've ever been uh, in my life. And uh, leave it to Brian Glisson to find out at 2 in the afternoon and be able to crank out such an incredible message on the book of Haggai. We're so thank- I'm so thankful for that. Um, and I'm so thankful to be with you today. I wanted to start this morning by kind of sharing a story about a little girl that I get to go visit. I've actually had the chance to go visit her a couple of times. Uh, when we go to Guatemala, we're able to visit this young little girl. And uh, her name is Maria, and she's 11 years old. She's the same age as my son, Jackson. And I have a picture of Maria. And this is Maria. And other than the same age as Jackson, that's about the only thing that they have in common. Because she doesn't live in a house like Jackson. She doesn't go to the doctors like Jackson's. She doesn't go to school like Jackson. Um, She doesn't have a dad like Jackson. In fact, dad left the day she was born. She doesn't run like Jackson. And, And as you can see, she doesn't even walk like Jackson. And this is Maria, and this is the life that she lives. She, she lives right there on that bed. And mom here, Tracenta, takes care of her and has taken care of her since the day she was born. In fact, mom very rarely leaves her side. There's no cars, there's, no, there's, there's none of that. It's uneven terrain. This is where Maria has been since day one, right here in this house. And and you probably are asking a similar question that I ask every time I leave this house. Every time I leave this house in Guatemala and step out onto that road, the same question kind of rolls in my head and rolls around in my mind. And it's a really short question, but not a simple question. It's this one word. Why? Like, like why? Why does this have to be Maria's world? So we're, we're in a series called Major Messages from the Minor Prophets. And we, we started this last week, and, and it's pretty awesome when you think about it, that there are 12 minor prophets, and these minor prophets were the covenant watchdogs of the law for God's people. They weren't the major prophets, so they didn't get the, you know, the sports drink endorsement and the, uh, the commercial, right? The car commercial. That's not what we're talking about here, obviously. It doesn't mean minor as in they were less important. It just means minor just means that they had less content than those other prophets that had come around the same time. But what we've learned in this whole study of the major messages from the minor prophets is this. God uses the minor prophets to convey major messages to his people. Not just back then, but for right now, for us sitting in this room. The minor prophets lived in some of the worst conditions in the nation of Israel's time. And that's saying something. Because Israel, since pretty much day one, had lived and been on the struggle bus, right? 
Like they, they really came with Abraham, but then when they got to Egypt, they multiplied, they became pretty big. They were, they, really their roots were slavery. And then something amazing happens. The exodus, right? They, they get led out of captivity. They cross an ocean. And then again, struggle, right? Something that should have taken them 40 days winds up taking them 40 years. Wandering around in the wilderness because of their disobedience. They finally make it to the promised land. And they decide... To go through a cycle of judges. You remember the story of judges, right? Like they, they get, they get uh, bad leadership ahead of them. People come in, take over the land. They become uh, besieged. And then they go through this cycle of, okay, God, we're so sorry for our wicked ways. God sends a judge. They get redeemed. Then they go through this cycle again and again and again. And then they think, okay, maybe we need a king. So they establish a monarchy. And they established kings, which sounds awesome, but out of the 42 kings, only seven of them finished well. And in the middle of this monarchy, the nation divides. It divides between Israel, the northern, and Judah in the southern. And here's what we find with the minor prophets. They're just as lost spiritually as they were when they were wandering around in the wilderness. And they are really at the point, by 600 B.C., half the country was in exile, and the other half would be within 20 years. And on the stage steps the minor prophet Habakkuk. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is, of the 12, we know the least about Habakkuk. He's called in Scripture, or he's not called in Scripture, but scholars call him the Doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. And can you really blame him? I mean, much of his friends and family at this point are in exile, thousands of miles away. The people of God at this point in, in history have basically ruined everything. Just like Moses said they would back in Deuteronomy. And Habakkuk is living in a thick cloud of his own people's Failure. Then arrives a ray of hope. A good king named Josiah. A young king. So he's got, what, many years ahead of himself, right? Like this good young king comes in and he begins to reform the nation, which is awesome because that's what they need. He begins to call them back to God and great things start to happen in the nation And then, guess what? He's on the battlefield. This young, great, godly king is on the battlefield, and he dies prematurely. Which leads Habakkuk to a great question, and a great question for us to ask. Why? Like, why, God? Why would you take out this good, great king who's doing good stuff for the nation Why take him out of the picture? In fact, the driving question for the book of Habakkuk is a why question that doesn't have an easy answer. And if you think about it, there's a lot of these, right? There's a lot of why questions out there that we simply don't have easy answers to. I'll give you a couple of them. Why do you drive on a parkway and park on a driveway? 
Why does your nose run and your feet smell? If pro is the opposite of con, is progress the opposite of Congress? I was wondering if somebody was going to laugh at that. Why do people say when they sleep good, I slept like a baby? Like, have they ever seen a baby? Have they ever, like, that is like the worst one out of all of them, right? Like, who says these things? And right here in the text, Habakkuk is going to ask a why question that doesn't have an easy answer, but it's a lot weightier and heavier than what we just said. You have this perplexing question with a permissive society. Look here in chapter 1, look at verse 2. Oh Lord, this is Habakkuk talking to God. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Oh, cry to you or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly, why do you lazily look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Habakkuk is living in a very dark time. And what he's describing here is this permissive society that he finds himself in with little to no morals. Now, who does this sound like? What other country, what other nation do you know that this sounds like? This permissive society where evil is right before us. Verse 4, so the law, because of all of this, verse 4, the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The law always becomes paralyzed in a permissive Society, The absolute standards of morality by God's law have given place to, even back then, what we would call relative morality. And we see this, don't we? We see this right here in our nation. The wholesale murder of unborn babies by abortion is accepted on the grounds of a woman's right to choose. Pornography in TV and movies invades under the guise of artistic expression. Sodomy is just an alternative lifestyle. Crime, trafficking, both drug and human. Prostitution, abuse, political corruption, blind foreign policy. All these things contribute to the growing moral weakness of our nation. And it was the same in Habakkuk's day. And so Habakkuk asked a great question, and a great question we ask often. And it's even a personal question that we find ourselves asking in our personal little world. It's the same question I ask when I step outside of sweet Maria's house. And here's the question. Why does God allow evil to continue? Why does he allow evil to continue? You know, we think about this question, and it has the macro 
uh, macro level question, right? Like, why does God allow a nation to do this? Why does God allow this, you know, in a macro sense? But we, we also have this question in a micro sense too, don't we? Like, we have this personal question of why does God allow evil to continue? Why do I work hard at work and I'm honest, but the guy who's the jerk who kisses up to the boss, why does he get the promotion? Why does the guy that does all these bad things, live to be 102, but the Christian dad dies at 42 of cancer? Why is it that we tried to raise our kid with a heart for God? Why did we, we, we tried so hard to in, in, implement Jesus into our life, into our culture? Our, our family always went to church. We, we had stories of, of God. We, we tried our best to raise our kids up in ways that would please God. And now our kids are adults and they are just so wayward. And yet this other family over here who didn't really have a clue, their kids are following the Lord. How come the drunk driver that's on his fourth DUI has now crashed into that family and killed that innocent five-year-old? How come that girl hops from bed to bed, is pregnant time and time again, and continues to abort those children, and yet we can't get pregnant? It seems like, God, you could do something, but you don't. Why? How can a good, all-powerful God allow this and many other evils and pain and suffering to occur. Our culture has kind of created some man-made answers for this question. Because this question is pervasive in our society. And here's some of the man-made answers you may hear. God is all-loving, but not all-powerful. God's all-loving, but not all-powerful. He means well... But he just can't control everything. That's, that's when you'll hear. Maybe you'll hear this one. God is all-powerful, but not all-loving. You remember the gods of Olympus, right? Like Zeus. This is kind of how they viewed Zeus, right? Is he's a god. He's all-powerful. Like he is the guy, but don't cross him on a bad day. He's got his... his Bolt of lightning, Thor has his hammer, and if you cross them on a wrong day, it's going to be bad news for you. In fact, the Muslim community, this is kind of how they view God. A God that is all-powerful, but not all-loving. Or maybe God has both good and evil sides to him. Right, like we've seen the cartoon where the guy's sitting there, he's trying to make a decision. The little demon comes on his, on his one side and the little angel comes on the other side. And maybe God does that. Maybe, maybe every time God needs to make a decision, he has that kind of little thing going on, right? The yin and yang, yin yang, right? Like the Eastern religions, this is what they believe. That little symbol with the, with the little circle with the, with the white and the black, this is that thought process. So maybe God has an evil side and, and a good side. Or maybe evil just doesn't really exist. Maybe it's just an illusion. Like that's, that's what the Wiccans believe or the Scientologists believe. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe the answer lies somewhere else. God responds to Habakkuk. He responds to his question. And he says here, there's this heavenly response with a harsh 
resolution. He's going to get a response, but it is going to be quite, quite harsh. Look at verse 5. God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. So Habakkuk asks the question, asks the question and God responds with, you're not going to believe me when I tell you. He's like, brace yourself, Habakkuk. I'm going to tell you something really hard to hear. Verse 6, for behold, I, God, am raising up the Chaldeans. Another, another uh, word for this is the Babylonians. We've heard of them, right? That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. What he's saying here is they make up their own rules. They make up their own justice. Verse 9. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. This is what God says to Habakkuk. That the way he is going to deal with the injustice in their nation is by using evil... To punish evil. And this brings us to this question. And it's the question that we hear a lot. The problem of evil. Why does God allow evil to continue? I'm going to just tell you. Out of all the messages that I can remember. This is one of the more difficult ones to talk about and explain. I can feel it in the room. I can feel like, ooh, this is a tough topic. And I know. I agree with you. I want to give you, I want to step back for just a minute into, I want you to walk back with me into seminary, right? So like we're going to walk back into 2003, 2004, and I want you to walk into one of my theology classes for just a minute. I had an incredible uh, theology professor named Norm Geisler. He was at one time the leading apologetic uh, voice for our nation, for Christian principles. And I had the privilege, uh, he lived right here in Charlotte, to go and be a part of his theology, which was incredible. You see, for a lot of us, when we get asked this question, because I've been asked this question, like if anyone in here is, is serious about their faith and serious about sharing their faith, at some point or another, someone's going to ask you this question. Why does God allow evil to continue? And this was the answer that I learned in seminary. And, and it's kind of deep. I'm just going to tell you. It's deep and it's a lot more long than this. But I'm going to try to simplify into just a few phrases for you to take, take down. Here, here's the first phrase that I want us to think about today. God does not create evil. God does not create evil. Because God is all loving... He created us with free will. Free will to choose him or free will to choose sin. So stay with me here. God is all loving. He created us with free will. And that free will gives us the choice to choose him or to choose sin. So what is sin? Sin is also not a created thing. Stay with me, okay? Uh, If you want to study this more, St. Augustine talks a lot about this. Sin is not a created thing. It's the absence 
or void of God's goodness. It's the absence or void of God's goodness. It's kind of like this. Stay with me here. It's like turning out the lights. Now, now think about this for just a minute. We just turned the lights out. And here's what did not happen. Darkness did not just roll in out of nowhere and overtake the room. That's not a thing. Because darkness isn't a thing. It's a void of a thing. It's a void of something. So when the lights go out... It's a void that's left here. The void or the absence of light. But then when the lights come back up, that's when light enters into the void. And this is how we have to think about sin. This is how we have to think about this. That sin is a void of God's goodness. It's, it's, it's the aftermeasure of what God brings, like God brings his goodness, his relational self, and sin is the absence of that. Therefore, our free will to choose sin establishes this relational void of God that we call evil. I know that's deep. How could an all-loving God allow evil? Think of it this way. It's God's very love that allows evil to exist because love, think about this, love requires a choice. On your wedding day, those of you that are married, I don't think this is true. Maybe the father-in-law did, but no one held a gun to your head <laughs> and made you marry that person. You married that person because you loved them. You wanted to be with them. You, you wanted a life with them. God's love enacts our free will to choose a life and an eternity with God or to choose a life and eternity without God. And that's what we call evil. So God doesn't create evil. And this is the even harder phrase to say. God controls evil. Now, listen, hear me out. That sounds hard, but I can prove this. I can show this. We see this in Habakkuk 2 right here. If you go on to read the, the account that God's giving here, this is what he's doing. He's using a wicked nation. He's using evil to punish more evil. Because God is all-powerful, his sovereignty demands that he be in control of everything, even dreaded nations like Babylon. Think about it. Romans 8, 28. We, we say this verse all the time as an encouraging verse, and it is. But think of what it implies. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things, all great things, all godly things, also, all not-so-great things, all evil things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Here's what this is saying. God can use struggles. He can use sufferings. He can use heartbreaks. God can use tragedies. God can even use evil in ways to bring about his glory and our good. The crucifixion of Jesus himself 
is an evil action of murder, yet God is in full control in that moment and even uses that evil for our good and his glory. Such events, even though we don't understand the reason for them, are part of his perfect divine plan. Therefore, God controls both good and evil to bring about his glory and our gain. Those of us that follow Christ. So, so this is deep. And this is really what, what Habakkuk is realizing, that this is what God is doing. This is the way, this is the method that God is acting on the people of Israel. Habakkuk gets a wanted reply. He wanted a reply with an unwanted answer. So Habakkuk then asks in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. He's saying, you're going to use these people for that? You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man that is more righteous than he. Habakkuk then goes on, I don't have time to read it, then goes on to describe Babylon like a fisherman. And he basically, in in our terms and words, would basically say, Babylon is going to catch us and gut us like a fish. Habakkuk's cry is, Babylon is worse than us. How can you, a holy God, use such corrupt nations as your instruments in history? You see, Habakkuk wanted a reply, but he didn't want this answer. And have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you wanted a reply from God, but you definitely weren't thrilled about the answer that you were getting? It's this moment where have we ever gotten to a point where we've questioned God, what do you do when what you see is not consistent with with what you feel? You know, this is true for a lot of us. Maybe you know the truth about God. Maybe, Maybe that whole little spiel there, that little academic spiel that we just had, maybe you know all of that. Maybe you could quote that. Maybe you could present that more eloquently than than I did. You probably could. But here's the truth. When it comes down to it, when we finally get to a place in our lives where God begins to show us things or we see things in this world that don't feel good, what do we do in those moments? You know, Habakkuk, he knew the word. He knew God. He he walked with God. He was in fellowship with God, and yet he knows all of this truth, but what he's feeling in this moment is not great. And what do we do when we question God? You remember when you became a Christian? Remember when you started following Jesus? If you're not in that category, I pray today you would be. But I I remember what it was like, and you probably can remember this. I'm kind of trying to visualize this for just a minute. But before Christ, we were dead in our sin, and there was no faith, right? Like, we're we're, we're not activated. Our faith is not activated. So we're, we're dead. We're just sitting here. And then there's a moment that comes through the grace of God and the Holy Spirit power, where we become believers in Christ, where we get activated in Christ. We, we, we stand in 
Christ. We stand in faith. Our faith becomes activated. And, and for some of us, like when I was eight years old, that happened in my life. For others of you, it could have been 80. But that moment occurs and our faith is activated. And, and, and in the Christian life, we call this process the process of sanctification. Our, our faith and our relationship with God, our fellowship with God, reaches new levels, new levels of faith, right? New levels of, man, God, I saw you come through there. But here's what happens in the journey. We, we tend to think that the walk of God, the faith walk of, of Christ, is going to just be this straight uphill mountain journey. And what normally happens in most of our lives is we, we have this moment where we come to Christ and then we, we start growing in the Lord and then something just shakes us. Our, our, one of our family members gets cancer. Our, our, our retirement gets wiped out. Something bad happens and our faith gets shaken. And we know all the right stuff. We know that Jesus died for us. We know, we know that God is Lord. We know he's all powerful. We know he's all good. But there's this feeling inside of us that causes us to doubt, that causes us to question God. And we, we come down a little bit. There's this dip in our walk. And what we do in the dip, what we do in the dip really determines really determines how far we go in our faith. And for, for a lot of people, I mean, we've seen this. This is literally like graduate high school and they're gone. And the problem is they never, in the dip, they never figure it out. They never realize that it's in the dip where we question God, where God wants to take us to a new height, to a new renewed faith. In him. So, what do we do with that? Look at what Habakkuk did, did in uh, Habakkuk 2 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk finds himself in the dip, but he's sitting there and he's waiting to see what's going to happen next. And God gives Habakkuk. Look at here, an earthly vision with an eternal perspective. He gives them an earthly vision with an eternal perspective. Look at verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, this vision will not delay. It's going to come exactly when it's supposed to come. Behold, his, it's talking about Babylon here. God's talking about Babylon. Behold, Babylon's soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. In these next verses, God lays out the earthly vision of what will come to pass, not just for the nation of Israel, but what will come to pass for the Babylonian Empire. You see, God may use corrupt nations, but it doesn't mean he endorses them. God gives uh, Habakkuk here five different woes that you can read on your own in chapter 2. 
about Babylon, and really about nations that, that become just like Babylon. Unjust econo economics, covetousness, violence, inhumanity, idolatry. These are the five woes. After reading these woes, here's the truth. We realize that most nations are going to become just like Babylon. In fact, we ourselves may even find ourselves in this place right here in our nation now. You see, here's, here's the pattern, here's the trend that they all have in common. That the wicked live by fame. They live by fame in their vanity of corruption. They, their life is about fame. And that's Babylon. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They were about fame. They were about their vanities. And it always leads to corruption. Verse 4, behold, Babylon's soul is puffed up. But then the key passage in this entire book is right here. But the righteous live by faith. The righteous, the wicked live by fame and their vanity of corruption, but the righteous live by faith in the victory of Christ. That even in the midst of all this earthly chaos, there is an eternal perspective. That God gives us a powerful prophecy that has not even yet come to pass. That he's going to say stuff to Habakkuk that Habakkuk will never see in his lifetime. Babylon wants to make a name for itself. The wicked want to make a name for themselves. But then verse two or chapter 2 verse 14, God says this. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's saying, hey, Babylon, their empire is going to come and it's going to fall. And guess what? Between all of that, there's going to be all these empires that come and they're going to fall. But there is coming a day. There's coming a day that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord just like the waters cover the sea. The sea, that this is our hope. This is what we're yearning for. Verse 20 says that the Lord is in his holy temple. There is coming a victorious king, and that king is seated, seated on the throne, controlling it all. So what's the major message of Habakkuk? The major message is this. It's faith. It's faith. It's that the righteous will not live by what they feel or see around them. They will live by faith knowing he is in control and knowing that he has won the victory. And Habakkuk finally gets this. In the last chapter, he finally understands what God is up to. Verse 2 in chapter 3 says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. Do I fear? You know, when we think of the word fear, we automatically think of terrified, we think of scared, and that absolutely has uh, context. But it, it's also this idea of, oh Lord, do I revere you? Oh Lord, do I surrender to this? I surrender to what you're bringing our way. And this is where faith starts for every one of us in this room. It's this place of surrender, that our faith surrenders. It begins with surrender. So how do we do this? How do, what do we do when we hit the dip? What do we do when we hit something in our lives that doesn't feel good, that doesn't feel right, that we're wondering, God, where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen? What do we do in that dip? 
Our faith surrenders, and this is how it surrenders. First, we have to listen. We have to listen. The whole book of Habakkuk, when you really get down to it, it's really this idea of listening and questioning. Listening and questioning. He's wrestling here. It's this idea of wrestling with what he's hearing. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Habakkuk's name actually means to embrace and to wrestle. To embrace and to wrestle. And for a lot of us, this is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in a place where we don't understand what God's doing. But what we're saying to God is we're going to listen. We're going to embrace what you're saying, God. We're going to listen to what you're saying. And God, then we're going to wrestle with it. We're going to question it. We're going to wonder. But God, you're going to use this in our lives, in that crisis of faith, in that dip that we find ourselves in. So we're going to listen the next thing we're going to do is we're going to write. We're going to write. Habakkuk 2.2 tells us that God told him to write down these things. Why? Why does he want Habakkuk to write this down? Because he knows we're forgetful. In fact, you're forgetful. I'm forgetful. I, my wife can literally have two things for me to get at Walmart, and as soon as I walk in the door, I've already forgotten what they are. Why? Because we're forgetful people. But what God's saying here is, hey, when you find yourself in the dip, when you find yourself in this crisis of faith, write. Why? Years later, this is what God's saying. Years later, when I've proven myself true, I want it in writing so you can be reminded I'm a God of my word. Think about this. If, if Habakkuk hadn't written this down, we wouldn't have this testimony of God's faithfulness. So we, we're to listen. Our faith surrenders by listening, by writing, and then by waiting. Awkward, isn't it? You think it's awkward for you? Be up here, it's really awkward. <laughs> we hate to wait. We're in a culture that wants it right now. And God says to Habakkuk right here in, in, in verse 3, for still the vision awaits. Chapter 2, verse 3, for still the vision awaits. It's appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. That we can remember this. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. That the promises of God will be fulfilled. Maybe not in our timetable, but in His. Our faith surrenders. And then when our faith surrenders, then our faith begins to see Habakkuk finally sees God. Verse, chapter 3, verse 3, the in, the, towards the end there, his splendor. Habakkuk's talking about God here. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Verse 10, the mountains saw you and ride. The raging waters swept on, verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head 
of the house of the wicked. Verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. You know what I think about when I hear this? I think God is calling back to the exodus. I think God is calling back to that moment in time where Moses and his people are standing on the edge of that sea and that thing splits. And it takes that faith step of every single one of those followers to step and literally walk through an ocean. I think he's calling back to this, that they they walked through a sea by faith, a past exodus becomes a foreshadowing of a future exodus where Jesus will defeat evil, bring justice to all people, and rescue the innocent. And this is what God is saying to Habakkuk is, just like this happened back here, there's coming a day where a new exodus is going to occur, and I'm going to do what I promised to do. When we surrender, our faith becomes sight. We begin to see what he is up to. But we're not fixed on a secular solution, but we're fixed on a sovereign savior. I mean, think of Hebrews 11, right? Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith. You list all these people and the faith that they had. And then what, how does Hebrews 12 start? It talks about this idea of fixing our eyes, just like all of these people behind me that had faith in God. Just like them, we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. Our sight isn't on an earthly solution here. It's not on this idea of, okay, Lord, once I have a child, then things will be right. Once I get married, then things will be right. Once I own a home, once I retire, once I'm healed, once the war's over in Ukraine, once Roe v. Wade is overturned, once that politician is gone, then everything will be great. No, we can pray for this. We should pray for this. But our faith doesn't rest on that solution being neutralized. Our faith rests on him. It's on him. It's saying in faith, in the midst of all this suffering and evil, Jesus, I see you. I see you. And when we do this, we can walk out of the valley of disbelief and doubt. You see, our faith, if we will just surrender, we will begin to see. And then when we see, our faith soars. Our faith Soars. Habakkuk ends chapter 3. He says this in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. If everything falls apart... And it actually gets worse. If all of that bad stuff happens, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even though you fill in the blank, even though this fails, even though we can't have children, Even though my child is wayward. Even if I lose my job. 
even, even though it, I had to take a second mortgage out for gas this week. Inflation's crazy. Even though war continues, even though sickness gets worse, we've been praying for this guy and he's actually, he's actually gotten worse. Even if evil persists, I will trust. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will have faith. I will trust. When the dip comes and we fall into a crisis of belief, even though that happens, we're going to step up. We're going to step out of that. We're going to trust God. We're going to wait. We're going to listen to what God has to say. Because God's wanting to take us to higher planes. He's, he's wanting us to step up. And our faith can do this, even when we don't understand what God's up to and, he's, and we don't understand how he's working. We can trust God. Verse 19 says, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. While sin, someone once said this, while sin places me in Adam's fall, faith sets me higher in God's glory. So if you would, go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're in a place right now that is just difficult. You're questioning God. You're wondering, why is this happening, God? You know all the truth about God. You know all the, all the philosophical stuff, all the biblical stuff about what's said about God. But you're feeling doubt. And you're feeling turmoil. And what God is saying to us is in that dip, in that doubt, trust Him. Step up into faith. Surrender that to Him. You might not see the big picture. You might not see the end game. Habakkuk never saw the end. He never got to see, at least on this side of heaven, he never got to see how this played out, how this prophecy worked, how the knowledge of the glory of God is going to be filled in all places of the earth. He never got to see that. But he wasn't fixed on the solution. He was fixed on the Savior. What are your eyes on today? You know, it's weird to think that the same God the same God that took that Moses and his people through the waters. The same God, the same God that was the God of Jacob, that, that promised the nation of Israel. The same God that's talking to Habakkuk right here in this passage is the same God. The same God that tears down Babylon. That that same God is speaking into your heart today and he's saying, just trust me. Just trust me. Just have faith. Follow me. Into the dip. Follow me. It's okay. We'll walk out of that. So God, I just pray, Lord, for each one of us, Lord, that even when we don't understand, even when we don't see that life is fair, even when we can't fathom the evil in our world and even in our personal lives that, that pervades us, Lord, that even in that, God, we can trust you. When, when all is failing around us, we can trust you, Lord. Help us to trust you. God, we need you. We thank you in Jesus' name.